Now, when you preach the Bible, your primary concern, your focus is always, should always be, this is one thing we firmly believe at Compass Bible Church, the primary concern is always on the text. What does the Bible say? What does it mean? And another thing we want to ask is, okay, well, what difference does that make? And especially when you consider that question, it's good for a preacher to also consider, well, who am I talking to? Right? First and foremost, what does the scripture say? But as I'm thinking through, okay, how do I show them the difference that this makes in their lives? Well, where are they coming from? And one thing you know as a pastor is people sometimes are coming from very different places. Uh, people are coming from different circumstances. Some of you this week has been a big trial in your life. Some of you, things are, are going well, and you're excited about life and to be here. Some people have different temperaments, where some of you just seem more predisposed to kind of be happy-go-lucky, and some of you are you know, more predisposed to be down or discouraged. Some of you might have different temptations. Uh, we have, again, different backgrounds, some you know, sickness, health in the room, rich or poor, all of that and everything in between. But also a pastor can know, well, there's some things that are true for everybody. Right? Every, one thing I can always know when I stand up to preach is I'm about to preach to a bunch of sinners who need Jesus. And that's true for everybody. Another thing that I can be confident of when I get up and preach is I'm pretty confident everybody I'm talking to wants to be happy. Right? That's just kind of a fundamental human thing. If I said, hey, would, would you like to be happy? I mean, you're thinking, well, considering the alternatives, yes, I think I would like to be happy. And think about even in the United States of America, that's something we take so seriously. It's in like the founding document of our country, the Declaration of Independence. When it said, hey, we're, we're getting away from England because hey, there's some things that, hey, King, you can't take away from us because you didn't give them to us. These are inalienable rights. That's the word that's used. And it says three of those that are given by our creator are life, liberty, and the pursuit of Happiness, right? That's, that's how seriously Americans take happiness. It's my God-given right to pursue happiness. I'm pretty confident everybody in this room wants to be happy. Well, the question is, how do you get it? How can you be happy, right? And that's really what the whole advertising industry is all about, trying to sell you happiness. Well, how's that working out? Not so great, I think what we see is there's a lot of people that want to be happy. There's not a lot of people that are happy. And the world's path, there's a lot of thoughts out there on how to be happy. And the world's path, it doesn't seem to be working out. Because recent studies aren't showing, hey, you know what? People are happier than ever. No, recent studies are showing, hey, you know what? People are more depressed than ever. So we want to be happy. The world's path to happiness is not working out. The good news is Jesus is going to tell us. The real path to happiness and joy. And that's what we're going to see this morning if you take your Bibles and open up to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verses 9 through 11. And so we've been looking the last two weeks at this analogy of the vine and the branches. And now Jesus is going to start to elaborate more. And really, he's going to get away from the vine and the branches in the illustration and get into unpacking more what he means by it. And that's what we're going to see the beginning of just in these first three verses. Follow along as I read John 15, 9 through 11. It says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. 
If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So I want us to start there with verse 11 because this is where Jesus is kind of, he's giving us the purpose. Hey, this is why I'm telling this to you. And I think especially those previous two verses, but even this whole analogy that I've been saying of the vine and the branches is because I want you to have my joy. I want you to have full joy. Jesus saying, I want you to experience a fullness of joy and happiness like you've never experienced before. And this is where I think we've got to, we're going to think carefully about some things this morning and maybe think carefully about some things you've heard out in the world or even some things that you have heard in church. And I want you to hang with me here as we want to carefully think through what the Bible teaches us. One thing maybe you have heard somebody tell you before is that God does not want you to be happy. He wants you to be joyful. And saying, well, happiness, that's short-term, that's shallow, that's selfish. But joy, that's eternal. That is deep, and that is selfless. And I just, maybe this is a personal pet peeve of mine, but I'm just going to throw a little bit of a flag on the play. We're certainly going to clear. See, there is a kind of happiness that is shallow, self-centered, and short-term, and a different kind of happiness that Jesus is talking about here. But I don't think the right way to draw that distinction is happy on one side and joyful on the other. You know why I don't think that's the right way to do it? Because happy and joyful are synonyms. That means they mean the same thing. Literally, go to thesaurus.com and type in joyful. You know what the first word you're going to see is? Happy. And in fact, it's not even one of the synonyms. It's the definition of the word. So I don't think that really works in English. And when you look at what the Bible says, and even the biblical words, it's not like the Bible's using one word for one kind of happiness or joy and another for another. I mean, the word that we're seeing used today, even in Scripture, this word for joy, it's not always talking about something that's good and permanent and lasting. It's the same word used to describe the rocky soil in the parable of the four soils. Remember that? The rocky soil receives the word with joy. Same word that Jesus uses here. Clearly a different kind of joy than what Jesus is talking about here. And even the biblical word in this passage for joy, kara, the Greek word, it's not like, oh, that was a Christian word. No, that was the same word for joy that was used all throughout society. And if you look it up at any Greek dictionary, it's going to say uh, kara, joy, gladness, happiness, you know, all of these things. So saying that God doesn't want you to be happy, he wants you to be joyful, strikes me as like saying Jesus didn't have uh, a dozen disciples, he had 12. What? I just don't think it works in English or in Greek. I don't think when, we, when people say that, they're using the right words, but what I do think is they are right in making a big distinction. There, there are different kinds of happiness out there, and there is a worldly happy, happiness that is short-term, shallow, and selfless, and there is a real, lasting happiness that Jesus is talking about right here. And that's what we want to explore the difference of today. I mean, another English word that come, this might come up with is the, is the word pleasure, right? If I said 
hey, I'm a pleasure seeker. You might be like, I don't know about this church and I don't know about that pastor being a pleasure seeker. Well, again, that's where we got to think carefully. Pleasure is not a bad word. What kind of pleasure? That's where we need to draw the distinction. Because even Psalm 1611, God says, at my right hand are pleasures forevermore. So pleasure is not the problem. It's, well, what kind of pleasure are we talking about? What kind of pleasure are we pursuing? Or in this case, what kind of happiness are we talking about? What kind of joy are we talking about? And we're going to need to see that the world, when it comes to thinking through things like happiness, joy, and pleasure, is very messed up. Which brings me to another statement that maybe you've heard, that it's one I do hesitate to say, which is, well, God wants me to be happy. I think that's actually a a true statement, as we're going to see right here in John 15, verse 11. But because our world, I think, has such a messed up idea of what happiness is, I don't say that a lot, because I think if I say that, people are going to plug in the world's definition of happiness and think that's what God wants me to have. And that's why I would say, no, 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 no. The world's definition of happiness is not what God wants you to have. Jesus is talking about something different here. So we want to see this distinction. So let's write this down for point number one this morning. Find joy that the world cannot give. And let's be very clear from the beginning that we're not really drawing a distinction between joy and happiness, but we are trying to draw a definition between basically everything your flesh thinks about joy, everything the world has ever told you about joy, and what Jesus is telling us real joy is all about. The problem isn't that we want to be happy or joyful. The problem is what we think that means and how we think we're getting there. Imagine tomorrow that you, you want to grill a nice juicy steak for Memorial Day. And you might not even need to imagine that for some of you because that might actually be what you're planning, right? And you want that steak to be seasoned just right. And you're trying to think about how to do that and you're, you're walking down the, the store uh, aisle and you're looking at different seasonings and you, you're, you're, you pick one that's got you know, a lot of good ingredients in it or maybe you're just a simple you know, salt and pepper seasoning kind of guy. And then you see one that's making all oh, the best steak seasoning you've ever had, you know, and it's just got all these words and ads on it. You're like, wow, that sounds pretty good. But when you read the fine print on the back, it's like, well, actually it's full of all these artificial things and we've thrown in a little arsenic in there too, right? (laughs) And you don't want to use that because, hey, it might be the best tasting steak you've ever had, but it's going to kill you, right? That's a big problem. And that's kind of what I think is going on here. The problem in that is not that you want a nice juicy steak on Memorial Day. It's how are you going to get it? What recipe are you going to follow to get there? The problem is not, oh, I want to be happy. I want to be joyful. The problem is what recipe are you using to get there? And what we need to learn today is Jesus is going to give us a radically different recipe than the world has ever told you about. So one thing I would encourage you to note there in verse 11 These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. Jesus wants to give us his joy, the kind of joy that he has experienced. He's basically saying, guys, you want to be happy. Let me give you my recipe, the right way to get there. And even to kind of go on this cooking analogy a little more, and the few days after our our son was born earlier this month, and my wife and I were just kind of getting used to this new child there in the hospital and kind of had the TV on in the background, we flipped to the Food Network and that show Restaurant Impossible was on. 
if you've never seen, seen the show, there's this one guy that kind of goes around to failing restaurants and helps them turn it around. And so he talks about the business side of things with them. Obviously, he brings a whole team and gives the whole restaurant a fresh look. But also, at some point, he gets in the kitchen with them. And he says, hey, let's look at your menu. Show me some of your dishes and let me show you how to do it better. And one of my favorite things about the show is sometimes when like the chef of the restaurant is there listening to this guy talk about how to do it better and they're kind of resistant. They're like, ah, no, I think the way we're doing it is good. And I'm like, um, your restaurant is failing. <laughs> this guy, this is what he does. Like he's got famous doing this. Don't you think you want to listen to him? Don't you think maybe, I'm just spitballing here, his recipe might be a little bit better than yours. And that's where some of us need to get today. Because Jesus is going to get up in our kitchen this morning. And he's going to say, here's a different recipe. And we're going to be tempted to say, eh, I don't know. I think, I think my recipe is working out all right. And we need to have the humility to know our recipe is going to fail. And Jesus, he's telling us the right way. And we need to be ready to listen to him. We need to realize my recipe for happiness stinks. Jesus knows what he's talking about. And the joy that he wants us to have is full. It's complete, right? This is the real deal. And there's other people that have that humble heart. And when uh, Robert, Chef Robert makes the new dish and they try it, they're like, wow, yeah, this is, this is what we need to do. That's the response I want all of us to have today. And so a lot of this in the first point has been introductory, right? Just defining terms, seeing that Jesus wants us to have a different happiness than, than what the world talks about, a real joy, not the false joy of the world. But now we're actually going to get into the recipe. How does Jesus say you get there? Well, now let's go back to verse 9. Verse 9. And I'm excited to talk about this verse because it's inviting us to think about something that I don't think we think about very often. And frankly, I don't think we think about it enough. Look again, verse nine, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. So part of that, Jesus saying, I love you. And Jesus loves me might not be groundbreaking material to you, right? That's something you've probably known ever since you were a kid. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, right? I sing that every night to my two-year-old when I'm putting him to bed in proud father moment. Last night, my four-year-old was holding our newest son and was singing Jesus loves me to him. And it was just one of those great moments, right? Well, you know that since you're a kid, Jesus loves me. But the first part of the verse is something you don't think about as much. How does Jesus love you? What does that love look like? Well, Jesus gives us a comparison. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. And what we're going to see is the love that the Father has for the Son is the most complete, most perfect example of love that Jesus could have possibly brought up. This is the greatest love. This is the supreme example of love. This is the love of all loves. And this is how Jesus loves his people. Let's write down point number two. Find joy in the love of all loves. That Jesus loves you with this great love. The greatest of all loves because it's the same kind of love that the father has 
for the Son. And that's even greater than other ways that God may express his love. God so loved the world. God loves the world, but I think there is a special love that God has for his Son. You know, just if you think through me, hey, do I love your kids? Well, if I'm your pastor, I hope you would think, yeah, the pastor loves my kids. But let's be real, there's a little difference with how I love my own children. There is a special love that every parent has for their children. And think of how the father describes his son when he speaks out loud at the baptism or the transfiguration of Christ. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The father loves the son. And some of this even brings me back to the Trinity, right? This idea that there is one God who has eternally existed in three persons. And again, if you look through your concordance, you're not going to see the word Trinity in the Bible, but it's a way we describe what the Bible teaches. Because one thing I hope you have seen very clearly in the gospel of John is that Jesus is God. He he claims it for himself. The The gospel of John makes it very clear. Jesus is God in the flesh, but Jesus is not the father. There's a distinction between the two of them. How do we articulate that? Well, One God in three persons, the Trinity. And we're starting to see more in these chapters even about the Holy Spirit. Well, here's another thing you've known about God ever since you were a kid. God is love, right? 1 John 4, 7, and 8. God is love. I want you to see the fact that God is love is totally linked to the fact that God is triune. One God, three persons. If God is love, that means it's intrinsically a part of who he is. If the Son is not God, for instance, if Jesus was not preexistent and eternal, then my question, if God is so fundamentally loving, well, who was he loving for all of eternity then? Or did he need us to have somebody to love? No. Eternal, true love has always existed between the Father and the Son. And we see that even other places in John that we are going to look at. The Father has eternally loved the Son. And the Son has always loved the Father. And even creation itself, I would say, is really just an overflow of that love between the Father and the Son. If you're in John 15, just flip over one page to John 17. And we'll be here in a few months, but just one verse to look at now to help us to understand, well, what does the Father's love for the Son look like? Look at John 17, 24. John 17, 24. This is Jesus' prayer that we'll dig into in a few months. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The Father has loved the Son from before the foundation of the world. It is an eternal love. So if the love for the Father toward the Son is eternal, and Jesus is saying, hey, just like he loves me, that's how I love you. Jesus' love for you, if you are one of his people, is eternal. Jesus has loved you from before the foundation of the world. And so that hints at something else. If Jesus' love for you is eternal, that really strongly implies his love for you is unconditional. And I want you to think about that. 
If Jesus has loved you from before the foundation of the world, if Jesus has loved you for eternity, do you really think there's going to be something that comes up this week that changes that? Do you think something that happens, you know, at the beginning of June 2021 is going to change what's been true for eternity? I don't think so. Jesus' love for you is eternal and unconditional. And another thing, notice if you look at John 17, 24 again, twice, it describes what the Father has given to the Son. It talks about basically his followers. God, the Father, you gave them to me. And I want them to see the glory that you have given me before the foundation of the world. The love that the Father has for the Son is eternal. It's also a love that gives. And even specifically, it gives glory. It really gives all things. Look at this verse, John 3.35, a verse we've already studied. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. How does the Father show love toward the Son? By giving him everything. Jonathan Edwards said, the end or the purpose of God's creating the world was to prepare a kingdom for his son, for he was appointed heir of the world. That's the kind of love the father has for the son, and that's the same kind of love that the son has for you. If you have turned from your sins and put your faith in Christ, if you are one of his people, because what the rest of the New Testament says, hey, Jesus is the heir of all things, and guess what we are? Joint heirs. Jesus invites us to be heirs with him. The Father from all eternity created everything that the Son might inherit it. And Jesus is saying, I want you guys to get in on this with me. How amazing is that? That's the kind of love that Jesus has for us. He loves you with an eternal, unconditional love that will give you glory. And that helps us unpack a deep theological truth that every Christian needs to understand. Are you ready? God's not out to get you. Right? Do, I need, do you need to write that down? Do I need to use smaller words? Right? That's actually a hard thing for us to sometimes grasp, even as Christians. And I want to make clear, this love that I'm talking about is clearly a love that Jesus has for his people. This is not the love that Jesus has for the world and the people that are rebelling against Christ. No, this is Jesus and his people, those that have turned from their sins and put their faith in Christ. And as we think about that, we need to understand that truth. God is not out to get you. I heard another pastor talking about this passage, and he talked about how a lot of Christians believe Jesus has a secret plan for my destruction. And that's kind of how we, we go through life. We just, you know what? Disaster has got to be just right around the corner, right? I just know that's what's going to happen next. You know what's right around the corner for you if you're a Christian? More eternal love that is leading to glory. Every day for the rest of not just your life, but for eternity. That's what's waiting around the corner for you. But now, again, we need to start thinking carefully. Because that does not mean, right here, right now, that all of your circumstances will be good. And that's where the paths really start to diverge. And we see that distinction between how the world thinks about happiness and how Jesus is telling us to think about happiness. The world says that happiness, joy, or pleasure is all about your circumstances. 
Jesus says joy, happiness, and pleasure come from knowing that I love you no matter what the circumstances. And the reason why many of us aren't as happy or as joyful as we should be with the love that, or the joy that Jesus is describing here is we are more focused on our temporal circumstances than we are on the eternal love of Jesus Christ. And that's our problem. We buy into the world telling us being happy is about my circumstances instead of what Jesus has told us. And even if you really look for happiness in Christ, you're going to get it all because you're going to know the love right now despite the circumstances and someday you will know perfect circumstances forevermore as we dwell with him in glory. But if you look for happiness according to the world, you're never going to get any of this. We must look beyond our circumstances for happiness because that's where the great comfort that we just talked about last week, right? We can know the pruning. As a Christian, I can know the painful, the hard circumstances that come into my life. Even those aren't, well, God's out to get me. No, God loves me and he's using those to make me more like Christ. He's actually even using the hard circumstances to teach me more about what real joy is. That's the purpose of why he has said these things. So we need to look away from our circumstances and focus more on the eternal love that Christ has for us. And he says there at the end of verse nine, abide in my love. And again, that word abide means to like rest or dwell or remain, that we are to remain in the love of Christ. And I certainly think part of what that means is I need to think about the love of Christ more than I do. It deserves more of my focus and more of my attention. But we do need to ask, well, what does abide in my love mean? What does that look like? And I think that's what Jesus goes on to explain in verse 10. In verse 10, he says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And if you just take out the first two phrases of verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, it starts to sound conditional. Like, hey, if you keep my commandments, then you can remain in my love. But what I want you to see is if you look at what comes right before and what comes right after, that's clearly not the best way to understand what Jesus means there. Because look before, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Was that with a conditional love? Not so much. No, it wasn't. And look at what comes after. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Did Jesus walk around and be like, man, I better not blow it or I'm gonna lose the father's love for eternity. Is that what he was thinking? No, he was actually, it was kind of the other way around because he was so confident in his father's love That's what motivated him to obey. And I think that's the idea. Because we know this love that's beyond all other loves, that's what's gonna help us to keep his commandments. And I abide in his love by keeping his commandments. So I think it's kind of, Jesus is saying, abide in my love. Well, wait, hold on, Jesus. What does that look like? Well, if you keep my commandments, then you will abide in my love. That's what it looks like. Abiding in my love looks like keeping my commandments, trusting what I say, knowing that I love you and knowing that that's what's gonna lead to joy. Point number three this morning, find joy in doing what Jesus 
says, find joy in doing what Jesus says. And this is where we come back to another statement that maybe you've heard even in church before. You've heard somebody say, hey, God doesn't care about your happiness. God cares about your holiness. Well, if we're using the world's definition of happiness there, that's a true statement. But because I don't think that really works, I think we need to think about that differently. Because the idea that happiness is over here and holiness is over here, whose idea is that? That's the devil's idea. The devil wants you to believe I cannot be happy and holy at the same time. And that's why every temptation he's trying to say, this is what will make you happy. But does it actually make you happy? Narrator, no, temptation does not actually make you happy. It destroys you, right? That's what we have to remember. God is trying to teach us, hey, you want to be happy? Pursue holiness. And that's where you'll find a real joy, a real happiness that's different and better than what the world has to offer. Jesus wants to show us the real path, but again, this is where it gets to be a struggle because he says, hey, that path is gonna be doing what I say. And of course, that affects how do we view Christ's commandments? Well, when we remember he loves me with an eternal love that gives glory, then his commandments are for my good. His commandments even are an expression of his eternal love for me. That's why I wanna keep them. I heard a really passionate speaker. I mean, he was so passionate. He just started walking up and down the aisles. And he kept saying this phrase over and over. There is a king and his way is the best, right? Do we really believe his way is the best? If we believe, hey, he loves me with the same love that the father loved the son, that's gonna help us keep in mind, you know what? His way is the best. And I wanna stay in his path because that's where real joy is. And Satan is lying to me. The world is lying to me saying that happiness is over here. It's not. Destruction is over there. Might be the best steak you've ever had, but it's laced with poison. And it's going to kill you. Jesus loves us with an eternal love that will lead to our glory. And therefore we can know his commandments are for our good. And we abide in his love by keeping his commandments. The same way that Jesus knew the father loved him with an eternal love that leads to glory. And so he did everything the father commanded. I want us to think more about that second part of the verse that Jesus is saying, just as I have kept the father's commandments and abide in his love, what did that look like? Well, let's go back to something we've already seen in John. Go back to John chapter four. And even as you're there, think about, there's a lot of ways we connect food with happiness. And that's even kind of a biblical image. Think of Psalm 63. It talks about my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Right? Even we still use kind of sayings like fat and happy, right? This idea of contentment, right? That I am well-fed, I've eaten, and I am satisfied. Well, in this chapter, the disciples, they go into town to buy food, and then Jesus has this famous interaction with the woman at the well. Remember, and he supernaturally tells her everything about her life, graciously exposes her sin, but also reveals himself as the Messiah. And really, I think what we see happen is she gets saved. 
She puts her trust in this new Messiah, and then she runs into town to tell everyone else about it. And then the disciples return in verse 31. Look at John 4, 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, because they had gone into town to get food, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? I mean, did Jesus doordash while we were gone? Like, how, what, what's going on here? But Jesus, he explains, because again, just like he talks about living water and the woman thought he was talking about something literal. Here, again, he's speaking figuratively, but the disciples are taking him literally. And in verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. My sustenance, my fulfillment, and I think you could even say by extension, my joy, my happiness comes from doing the will of my Father. That's what Jesus is saying. My pleasure is to do the will of the Father. Think about those nice people that work at Chick-fil-A, right? When you say thank you, oh, it's my pleasure Well, Jesus is saying, my pleasure, my joy, my sustenance comes from doing what the Father wants. And he's saying, hey, do you want to experience joy? Do you want to experience this real happiness? Then do what I say. Make your pleasure to do my will. And again, now we start to see the serious divergence between how the world thinks about happiness and how we should think about real joy and real happiness. Because we're saying, no, it comes not from doing what I want. It comes from doing what Jesus wants. And I think also the world links happiness just with fun, right? It's just having a good time. Where Jesus is saying, no, joy is not all about fun. And sometimes it's not always going to feel enjoyable in the moment. It's not always going to be easy. And part of what I want you to see today is that starts to sum up a lot of what we have seen going through the Gospel of John. It sums up a lot even of what we talked about on Good Friday this year when we looked at the words of Christ when he said, hey, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Jesus didn't see the cross merely as something he had to go through and then be glorified. No, he saw that there was glory in the cross itself. And we've talked one phrase that the Gospel of John loves is the double meaning of the phrase lifted up. That we might even use it in worship songs, singing about Jesus being exalted. But we also think of it literally, Jesus was lifted up on a cross. And Jesus is saying, it all goes together. When I was lifted up on the cross, I'm glorified because of that. He saw glory, he saw joy even in what God called him to do. And that's where it gets so different from the world. The world says, Happiness comes through self-fulfillment. Jesus says, happiness comes through self-denial. And that's very different. And that's why I do hesitate to just say openly, well, God wants you to be happy because I think most people then, well, God wants me to have all of my desires fulfilled. No, Jesus is trying to say, hey, some of your desires are messed up. And I want to teach you the right way. And true joy is going to come from denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following me. The world wants to say that joy is all about your circumstances. 
Jesus wants to say, no, joy is all about resting in my love, no matter what the circumstance. And that's where we need to realize the path from a human perspective, the path that Jesus lays out to happiness and joy is much more difficult than the world's. But it is so much better because the world's path to joy and happiness doesn't actually lead there. It's a big lie. It's the biggest con that's ever been pulled. Jesus is describing the real path. But that's where the challenge is going to come from, okay, what about you this week? Are you going to focus more on your circumstances or are you going to focus more on the eternal love of Jesus Christ that is leading you to glory? The challenge for you this week is going to be, am I going to seek what I want? Is it going to be about my will or my pleasure? Or am I going to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow Christ? One of those options leads to joy. The other does not. I agree with A.W. Tozer when he said, the people of God ought to be the happiest people in all the wide world. The question is, how do you get there? And I think Jesus has given us a clear path. And the question we need to examine our own hearts and pray about is, am I really willing to follow that path this week? Let's pray together. God, Father, I want to pray this morning that you would make us happy. God, and not a happiness of the world that's about our desires, that's about fun and short-term sinful pleasures. God, show us what real joy and happiness is all about. God, turn our eyes from the things our flesh craves, the things that the world is trying to sell us. Help us to see it for the lie that it is. And help us to see you. God, help us to think more about your love this week. God, we so often just get rocked by our circumstances. We are so easily distracted. God, help us to think more of the steadfast love with which you love us. God, and help us to learn, help us to see that real joy and contentment is not going to come just in fulfilling our desires. It's going to come through seeking you and your desires, especially when that means we have to deny ourselves. God, help us to trust you enough to believe this incredibly countercultural and to our flesh counterintuitive way of thinking, God. There is a world of difference between how the world thinks about joy and how you're teaching us to. God, help us to lean into what you are saying. God, help us to deny ourselves this week. And God, I pray that we would then experience the kind of joy that you are talking about here. Lord, open up our eyes. Please help us work in us, God. And I pray for those here that have never known real joy because their life is about following the world and following that broad path that leads to destruction. May today be the day that they realize the emptiness of what the world is trying to sell us. Help them to see that the world's recipe is poisonous, God and that we would turn to you, deny ourselves, and find love and satisfaction in Christ. God, it's one thing to understand these. It's another thing to live these things. So we thank you that you've given us a helper. And I pray that he would work in all of our hearts 
to help us live what we have talked about today. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.